You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me is towards the end of a very interesting week in the um, energy and climate policy um, arena is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. I trust all our listeners are keeping up with the news. It's a pretty much a full-time occupation at the moment. Um, I don't know where, where we should start. We've got a great interview this week, but I think myself the most important long-term news uh, is the uh, proposed uh, European 55% uh, carbon reduction by 2030. And in my personal opinion, that whilst there's a lot of bits and pieces to that that matter, it's their, their decision to phase out the use of uh, fossil fuel cars uh, by 2035 that will uh, be felt in Australia first because, well, what do you think is important, Giles? I'll get back to why I think that's important. Well, look, um, I agree with you. I think that's um, it's a, it's a fascinating. Yeah, fit for, 50, fit for 55, they call it. This is part of their interim target um, leading up to the net zero emissions by 2050. It's a proposal from the EU Commission. As you say, they want to basically um, impose zero emissions on new car sales by 2035. So the effect of that is actually the sale of new petrol and diesel cars will probably stop well before then or a few years before then because um, for obvious reasons, the car makers aren't going to be making them. Who's going to want to be buying them when they've actually got to be um, zero emissions? So um, really quite a significant step. The other part of that equation is the increased targets, the effect on the carbon price and the continued push to um, impose those carbon tariffs on imports. And that, of course, translates into Australia because Australia exports quite a lot of stuff to um, Europe. A lot of it um, has high emissions and um, Australia is probably facing a carbon price of around about $80 a tonne. Um, um, and ironically, the carbon price that, <laughs> if, that's, if you call that a tax or a price, but it will be paid to Europe, not to Australia, um, which kind of sort of makes the sort of the um, removal of the carbon price in Australia you know, back in 2000 and um, oh, what year was it, David, that we lost the carbon price? 2014, I think, completely self-defeating. Yes, Giles, but uh, I think in the first instance, we don't actually export that much directly to Europe. So I, I personally am less worried about the immediate impact of that on the Australian economy. But I do think that we, uh, the, the car industry is completely global. And as we've discussed a couple of times on this podcast, the car developers, uh, particularly those in Japan and certainly in Europe, aren't going to be developing two sorts of cars. So as you say, they're going to stop uh, producing internal combustion cars and stop developing them uh, uh, much sooner than people think. And even Japan, uh, as we'll hear a little bit, is, is going to have to move heavily towards electric vehicles, perhaps hydrogen as well, but I think electric fairly soon. Uh, and, you know, part of this uh, EU package is uh, an EV refuelling station every 60 kilometres. Um, sometimes I think we'd be lucky to have one every 600 kilometres if it was left to the federal government. Uh, and <laughs> I, I, I want to point out, as, as well as what Europe's doing, China has had about 0.9 million electric vehicles or, or partly electric vehicle sales this calendar year to date so far. And we're only in July, 0.9 million. 
China is introducing its own early version and very limited version of a carbon tax uh, in the next couple of months or carbon price. And uh, there's clear plans you can read about in the Wall Street Journal to expand that in China over the next few years. China has moved its uh, control of the environment into the powerful uh, NEDR, I think, uh, um, ministry in China. And we also have in this news in, in Japan and um, uh, South Korea has announced a 30 million uh, 30 billion investment program into batteries in partnership with industry. My point is there's a global deluge coming and Australia's not going to account for very much in all of that. Ah, but at least, David, we would have saved the weekend. Um, the um, Yes, no, it's really quite dispiriting. But look, I reckon there is a little bit of a tipping point happening in Australia at the moment. And I say this for a couple of reasons. One, we're starting to see some decent rebates being offered in Victoria and New South Wales. Two, we're starting to see a lot of interest for some of the most popular vehicles. Tesla has shipped, you know, um, a couple of freighter loads. There's been about 3,000 Model 3s arriving on the shore in the last couple of um, the last month or so. Um, a lot of them will be sitting there until the uh, in New South Wales, at least, until the rebate kicks in. There's big queues for the MG. Um, the Porsche is a ridiculous price, but it is actually outselling the petrol and diesel version, which goes to show what happens when you get um, parity. Not that it probably matters at that sort of price that they're paying. And on top of all that, um, the readership of the driven has just kind of doubled in the last month. I mean, it's absolutely sort of, it's overtaken Renew Economy. It's just sort of shot up. No, I've no doubt there's, there's interest, Giles, uh, and it's great that the readership has gone up. Uh, uh, I think that's fantastic news. Uh, but my point is you still won't be able to get a lot of the cars in Australia as, as quickly as you can get them nearly anywhere else. As we know, Volkswagen can't, I mean, because demand globally is shooting up, uh, they've been sent to the countries with markets that are most supportive, and that's certainly not Australia. Uh, so we won't, we can't get any electric VWs here. Uh, we, as far as I know, we still don't get the Tesla Model Y. I might be wrong about that. Uh, no, uh, we don't. No, it's um, we're the um, with the um, EV equivalent of um, of the vaccine disaster, really. Sort of everybody else is getting the vaccines except for us. Um, that's right. In, in I, Australia, I, yes. I compare us with vaccines. I think vaccines are a good comparison. But look, we won't. We'll no doubt we'll talk a lot more about that as the year uh, rolls on. Uh, there's been a lot of other news this week. Uh, I guess the speech by Daniel Westerman, the new uh, chief executive of AEMO, uh, is perhaps the most important, although the AEMC has also shown with a couple of its announcements this week that it's finally caught, catching on that we're in the 21st century. Yes, well, congratulations to the AMC. Yes, a couple of, let, let's get to that in a minute. I think the Daniel Westerman speech was really, really interesting. This was his first set piece since he took on the role about two months ago. So he's been sitting there working out what is AEMO and what it needs to do. And the most, um, and he announces basically in his first speech, he has basically fast tracked their preparations for the tra transition to renewables grid. If you go back a year ago, um, his predecessor, Audrey Zieberman, was saying we, the um, Australian grid's facing up to 75% instantaneous renewables by 2025. And if we're not prepared, we may have to sort of cut that back and stop that from happening to that extent. And Daniel Westerman's coming up and saying, well, actually, we need to be ready for 100% because we can't, technology is changing. And I think they kind of boosted by some of the technology developments that we've seen over the last couple of months, which we've reported on and also discussed here, David, um, the, the, the the growing relevance and the opportunities and the possibilities with inverter-based technologies and with battery storage and virtual um, trans, um, synchronous generation, all those things. I, I think that their picture of the technology has reassured them um, and they're just pleading, let's get this done, let's all work together 
um, and, and, and quite, a, quite a powerful statement, but not very much appreciated by the coalition government, unfortunately. No, no, Keith Pitts, uh, according to what you've said, has labelled it absolute nonsense. Uh, I, you know, I find that fairly pleasing because uh, Keith Pitt uh, normally talks complete drivel uh, uh, over and beyond <laughs> anything. And, and so if he thinks something nonsense, there's probably a good chance. But look, uh, uh, it's a great speech by Westerman. I think it's, to be clear, 100% renewables is only meant to be instantaneous 100% renewables. I think it's very important to understand it's not 100% renewables all through the year. That's uh, not going to be happening until well after 2030 on just about anyone's forecasts. But uh, having the grid ready to manage it at any instant uh, is a great start. It is going to require quite a lot of things in terms of transmission upgrades, all of which are stalling. Uh, there are still, we did see uh, a couple of the very much delayed wind farms in Victoria, really big ones like Stockyard Hill and Mirabal get their hold points increased, but we're still yet to see the uh, power output coming from that. Uh, yeah. and, and we also saw the energy consumers. I don't always ag- agree with their position on things, but I do agree that this need to get some social license for the transmission or in general to get social license for the transition overall uh, is important. But I also think that notwithstanding the not-in-my-backyard brigade that exists for absolutely anything, including every breath you take, um, uh, nevertheless, there is broad support for the transition and, and it will get done with a, with a bit of care. So it's, it's nice to see uh, that sort of, um, that, that everyone's going to have a share of voice. But, you know, the chief executive of the AMO, it's a big job. This is his first speech. He's been in Australia, I don't know, for a few months. I mean, I'm pretty sure he'll be, he'll, he's still got a fair bit to learn himself, to be honest. Well, no, that's probably right. Yes, no, and, and you're right about the um, the Energy Consumers Australia. Um, we published their opinion piece um, to um, this week, and um, and it was a good piece. It talked about social license, but also about information for consumers. There's going to be a lot happening in the household with electric vehicles, and there's a lot that consumers don't understand and need to know and need to be properly informed. And that's really crucial and actually quite challenging given the media landscape that we've got at the moment. Just moving back to the AMC and the battery storage, yes, two big developments then. One about fast frequency um, services. This is the batteries are so fast, they can now create a new market which is responding to incidents in the grid in less than two seconds rather than the six seconds previously. That's fantastic. Push forward by Infogen, now Ebidrola, and largely put into place as expected, although it's not going to be another couple of years before it's actually put into place and people wondering why it would take so long. And the second is just fixing up the sort of the registration problems and the dispatch problems, which has just basically meant that hybrid plants, whether they be wind and solar or wind and batteries and solar and batteries, can actually operate as proper hybrid plants. I mean, basically, they just been, you know, sort of sitting next to each other and sort of look at each other, but they don't actually do, they don't actually work together because they haven't been allowed to work together. So this is a much needed rule change, probably should have happened a couple of years ago, will finally come into place looks kind of okay it's just a draft out at the moment we'll probably have more analysis of that but once again probably not coming into practice for another couple of years so i think broadly these two speeches are in some and actions and rules reflect that there's been a change of leadership at the top of the policy and regulatory uh, tree and we're seeing the directions you know the outcomes of a, a fresher approach where i i personally think that by and large uh, uh, the executive now accept uh, that, you know, we're having a big transition. Let's just make it happen as smoothly as possible. So that that's my thought about that. 
I would say that the two-second fast frequency market is only the first step. Uh, once everyone gets more comfortable with the idea of these grid-forming inverters, uh, then I think we might have, end up with a virtual inertia market and, and, and a complete change in the way that we, th we think about things. And I also agree with your comment earlier that we've all got more confidence in that uh, as we come to see that within that inverters can do a lot of the job that's uh, used to require spinning reserve. Not Maybe not yes. all of it because there's, there's something about fault current and bits and pieces, but, you know, it's the technology path is becoming clearer every, every quarter. Absolutely. And uh, before we get back to the interview, we should just mention a couple of big announcements in terms of sort of planned projects. And look, both these projects that have been announced this week are a long way from being done, but it's really interesting that they've been announced and proposed. First one's by CWP and Intercontinental Energy, the people behind the Asia Renewable Energy Hub, which is a 26 gigawatt wind and solar facility in the Pilbara. They've now doubled that 50 gigawatts um, in South Eastern Western Australia. So just imagine around about Kalgoorlie, south to Esperance, now towards the South Australian border. Once again, similar markets, green hydrogen, green ammonia, 20 million tonnes a year production. Not even a financial investment decision until 2028, because it's going to take about seven years to think about all the things that need to think about in terms of finding a place to export this stuff, to actually build the stuff, to get the people on side, um, all the environmental approvals. But it just goes to show you, David, we've seen sort of similar size things announced, including by Intercontinental in Oman, um, by others in Kazakhstan, in the North Sea, in um, the Americas. Um, it's just extraordinary the scale of the projects we're seeing envisioned. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, my only comment would be it'd be nice to see one of these projects actually get its I mean announcements are easy and, and frankly you get a lot in the investment banking world not one people don't take a lot of uh, pay a lot of attention to announcements they pay attention to final investment decisions and where's the money coming from and who are you selling it to uh, so it's, yes, it's a great announcement. I'll, I'll, I'll give them that. <laughs> well, we in the media people, we're less critical and less, <laughs> maybe a little bit less scrutiny than the investment bankers because we don't have to put our money where our mouth is. So we just put the headlines on. So, um, But it's still exciting for us. Look, the other one, um, and I think it does point towards a trend, and um, I think we're heading in that direction. Whoever actually actually produces those big projects is yet to be seen. The other one, which I thought was really interesting, was Spark Infrastructure. They own or half own the um, distributed networks in um, South Australia and a couple of them in Victoria plus a 15% stake in Transgrid. They're moving into what people call the unregulated market, basically. They've already built the Bowman's solar farm. Now they've kind of done this big sort of land grab, if you like, in southwestern New South Wales, um, talking about two and a half gigawatts of wind, solar and storage in just that little hub. Um, and they want to try and fast track the renewable energy zone in that area. Plus, they've got another one gigawatt or so of quite large wind and solar mixed with storage projects elsewhere in New South Wales and South Australia. A really quite significant push from a network company, which incidentally has just come under a um, takeover bid from KKR and Ontario Teachers, but an interesting push from a regulated monopoly company into the unregulated generation and storage market how do you see all this working out david well you know again being um uh, an analyst I, I tend to say that it's uh, an amazing coincidence that we got this great headline announcement uh, on the same day that the takeover bid was lobbed in um and look i like spark infrastructure conceptually um, you can talk about the valuation uh, which is high by historic standards but maybe not by future standards 
it owns a lot of wires and, and poles and doesn't have any gas at all. It's all electricity, uh, including the transmission in New South Wales, which is going to see a lot of growth, uh, even though it's only a minority. It's structurally subordinated, by which I mean that uh, it doesn't own more than 50% of any of its assets, really. Uh, but but it, all those wires and poles, I think, are a very powerful asset in the longer term as distributed energy becomes more and more powerful. And the network owners are, in my opinion, uh, the key could be the key players in actually coordinating and orchestrating all of that if the regulatory arrangements were in place. So that, that's on the outset. As far as this particular project goes, it's great. It's terrific. But we, again, we need to see a lot more detail um, uh, before we see if it, uh, the returns are going to fit the risk profile, which to date for Spark has been, uh, uh, you know, very, very low ski uh, at the very low end. I mean, they, they, they don't require much of a return because they, they're guaranteed to get it. If you're mm. going to go into the development business, uh, then you need a, a higher return. So mm. interesting to watch. Good stuff. Well, look, I think that takes us to our interview, um, David. And look, um, as mentioned, uh, this is an interview that you conducted because I wasn't available. I was too busy writing, writing all these big headlines with uh, big gigawatt numbers and um, also managing to have an argument with my neighbour, but um, won't go into that. Um, can you introduce your uh, interview guests for this week? Yes. So, uh, you know, as we've written a, a bit, uh, interested, very interested in Japan and its new target uh, that was announced with uh, Joe Biden by its prime minister, uh, uh, to hit 45% carbon reduction by 2030. And as what I hope will be the, only the first of a series of investigations of this topic, uh, we, we talked to Monica Nagashima, uh, who's part of the Influence Group and uh, understands what's going on in Japan fairly well. And she's given us uh, a great uh, introduction to the issues that Japan faces uh, as it moves forward. It's my pleasure to welcome uh, Monica Nagashima, uh, the uh, Engagement Manager for Influence uh, uh, Organisation, um, uh, to the podcast today to talk a little bit about Japan. Uh, how are you, Monica? I'm doing great, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, I might just start uh, for some of our listeners. Maybe you could just spend 30 seconds to talk about uh, Influence Map and, 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 and what it does and what its role in Japan is. Absolutely. Um, so Influence Map is a climate risk think tank. Uh, it's headquartered in London and we have offices in Tokyo and New York. Our primary focus is on corporate influence of climate change and energy policies. In Japan, we have a collaboration called JETI, the Japan Energy Transition Initiative, and uh, we look at different um, aspects of the energy transition and we put on webinars and promote reports in Japan. That's great. Uh, and I guess Japan's come into focus uh, for us here in Australia a bit uh, because it's one of our largest trading partners, uh, if, particularly for energy products. And also, I suppose, because Japan made some headlines this year, or your prime minister did, uh, Mr. Suga, uh, by um, uh, announcing somewhat surprisingly a new climate change target of, I think, 45% uh, reduction from, I think it's 2005 levels, I might have that wrong, uh, by, by 2030. Um, what did, was this a surprise to you? Um, indeed, it was. Um, it was a, quite an ambitious target, so uh, 
you know, both us and uh, I believe a lot of the corporate sector in Japan that is pushing for more ambitious uh, climate and energy policies. We're very happy to see this commitment from the government. And uh, I guess uh, we are all watching the next steps more closely. Um, you know, those, the specific medium and short-term targets that would uh, kind of, uh, sorry, medium and short-term policies that would enable these targets. Yeah, perhaps you could talk about uh, a little bit about what you see as the next steps in Japan. Sure. So currently, um, there's a big debate going on around the basic energy plan, which uh, gets adopted every few years in Japan. And this one is very significant because it will include the energy uh, mix or sort of the breakdown of the different energy sources in our power sector for 2030. And um, this has been quite challenging. So during the last revision, for example, uh, these targets have not been touched at all. And one of the reasons is the uncertainty around nuclear power. After the Fukushima accident in 2011, um, there's been kind of public opposition to nuclear energy. But it is also uh, a carbon neutral source and uh, the government appears to be quite keen to keep it in the energy mix. So that's a big sort of portion um, of uncertainty. And then you also have uh, the renewable energy target. Um, currently, it's set at 22 to 24 percent in the 2030 energy mix. Uh, but Japan already reached uh, about 21% last year in terms of its renewables. So the question is, how high can they set this target for during this ongoing revision? You know, certain groups like um, there's a CEO group in Japan that has called for 40% target. There's another group called the Japan Climate Leaders Partnership, the JCLP, um, and they... It, this group consists of a lot of demand side companies like Asia's largest uh, supermarket chain, for example, and they're calling for a 50% target. So we're hoping that the government, um, you know, could, uh, could listen to these voices and set an ambitious path for Japan. So just looking at the numbers for a second, that 21% uh, that Japan has already achieved for renewable energy, uh, that would include uh hydro i guess and and also the nuclear power as well as the wind and the solar in japan uh the 21 percent does not include nuclear i think nuclear makes up around four um at this point but it does include hydro solar uh, biomass uh and wind and so I guess uh, when in the group of G7, when I looked at all the numbers and I was reading some uh, reports getting ready for this, it seems like coal is the uh, biggest share, like coal generation. Uh, J Japan has the largest share of coal generation in the electricity mix across the G7. Uh, and uh, it uh, that must surely be a high priority in, in terms of achieving this 2030 target to reduce that share of coal. And then we could talk a little bit about gas as well. But, but broadly, as you look at it, how do you think uh, Japan will approach, I guess, 
reducing the share of coal in the generation mix. Yeah, Japan is is an outlier than G7 in that it uh, still, you know, sees coal in the domestic power mix. And then the government and the companies have also been heavily criticized for supporting coal in, uh, in other economies, especially in Southeast Asia. Um, in terms of long-term plans, so the government has also already announced that it would phase out highly inefficient coal. But of course, there's the question mark around you know, efficient coal, what that's going to look like. And uh, one of the strategies we recently heard is the potential mixing of ammonia with coal um, to kind of lower emissions slightly. Um, but even then, ammonia would only cover 20% and then 80% of coal would still be there. And uh, of course, this technology hasn't been commercialized yet. Uh, they're planning to bring it in, you know, sometime before 2030. And then to have this uh, configuration in the energy mix for, you know, for the foreseeable future until 2050, when 100% uh, ammonia combustion could be possible. So, you know, I believe that's the official, um, official plans that we're hearing right now. Yes, uh, but clearly, they'll, um, you know, anyone like someone from the private sector background like me would uh, wonder how Japan could possibly do that so quickly with, with a brand new technology um, uh, that, as you say, is yet to really be proved up in a, in, a, in a significant commercial way, although even if the early signs do look quite promising. And, and your, your opinion, Monica, you know, in terms of gas, uh, where Australia is a large exporter of, uh, seller of gas to Japan, do, do you think that Japan's targets will involve the use of about the same amount of gas or more or less? How, um, do you see any signs, for instance, that Japan is gearing up to build a lot more gas-fired generation? Yeah, I, I think Japan sees gas as a cleaner alternative to coal. And um, we haven't really heard plans of um, gas reduction. Um, on the contrary, uh, you know, gas power plants are being built domestically, although, um, you know, from kind of the Japanese population is declining and uh, overall energy consumption will go down. So in, in terms of nominal capacity, uh, it will decrease. And so um, the government and companies are looking out to emerging economies in Southeast Asia. And uh, I think uh, the government is quite keen to support the creation of a LNG demand market in other countries, um, they're supporting with uh, with policies, for example. You know, they are kind of working with other governments to make sure that gas is being introduced there, um, but also offering to provide financing and training and, uh, you know, of course, uh, technology solutions. Um, so in, in terms of uh, trade with Australia, certainly, uh, I think Australia is now the biggest supplier of LNG to Japan and also a large supplier of coal. So 
I think uh, just kind of moving on to hydrogen and ammonia, maybe um, there also seems to be a lot of interest in using those resources in Australia with CCS to produce uh, blue hydrogen or blue ammonia and to bring it to Japan or to, you know, sell it to other countries who would be interested. Yes, uh, you know, I, I think that is uh, part of the plan that uh, people think about. Uh, on the other hand, I myself am more sceptical about the future role of gas. This is my own view because it's like uh, gas is 20% of global carbon emissions and the fastest growing natural source, or it was up in, in 2021, I think coal will go back into the lead because of China's growth. But certainly gas is, is right up there and, and oil is another one, which I'll come back to. And I also want to talk a little bit uh, about Japan's hydrogen strategy and ammonia uh, and what its targets are and what that might mean. But uh, I, before we get there, I, I just thought we might talk about the prospects for uh, renewable energy, uh, solar and wind, you know, uh, in, in Japan. I think the perception is that it's difficult to do solar because the land mass, that the uh, affordable land is, is quite hard to, to get to. Uh, and onshore wind, I guess there'd be similar issues, but there does seem to be some pretty good prospects for offshore wind. And I think Japan has announced a, a target of about 10 or 11 gigawatts by 2030. I'm wondering if uh, whether you think that might be lifted or, or how achievable that actually is. Yeah, certainly. Um, what we notice uh, in the domestic discussions is, uh, you know, this this cost issue. So solar and onshore wind, for whatever reason, are quite expensive in Japan right now. And... Um, that has been used as an excuse almost uh, by, you know, a lot of incumbent utilities to say that, you know, we can't rely on renewables so much because of cost issues. And, you know, therefore we should maintain our thermal capacity and so on. But um, we're also seeing a lot of, uh, you know, supply side companies that are, are saying that they need to have more renewables in order to to stay competitive globally. And if they can't procure enough in Japan, they will have to relocate to other countries. So that has created pressure on the government. And um, last year, there was an announcement by um, kind of uh, Minister Kono, who's in charge of uh, regulatory affairs. And um, he said that uh, the government will try to you know, will prioritize renewables, try to make them the main source of energy, as they put it, and uh, kind of erase all the roadblocks that are making um, renewables difficult right now. And uh, for offshore wind, yes, uh, the target of 10 gigawatts by 2030. Um, you know, we heard, I, I like I heard from the UK, uh, for example, um, the Crown Estate um, has has been like the largest developer of offshore wind in the world. And um, they said that regulatory easing and policies are probably the most important factors in um, expanding this, uh, this sector. So, and what we're seeing right now from the Japanese government also, they're very, very keen to, to you know, to have this grow in Japan. Um, 
So that's quite a promising sign. And uh, I believe at the moment already 1.5 gigawatts of capacity have been auctioned and there are uh, certain Japanese companies together, uh, you know, forming joint ventures with uh, global players like Orsted uh, that are trying to, um, to build out these projects here. So yes, uh, you know, from, <laughs> from us climate watchers and uh, you know people that are hoping to support the energy transition, we see all of this as a very encouraging sign. Yes, I, I must say the way, when I look from Australia at the way uh, um, countries in Asia, and I shouldn't be use it as a, uh, in such an inclusive sense because every country has its own way of doing things, but it does seem to me that when corporate Japan uh, makes a plan or the same could be said in South Korea or even in China and the government really gets behind it and wants it to happen, uh, then then all of a sudden things can happen much more quickly uh, than people realise at the outset. Uh, and I, I, I think that for offshore wind, offshore floating wind in Japan, when you look at it as, as an, an analyst uh, and just look at what Japan actually could do with a blank sheet of paper, then offshore floating wind looks like it could be a great source. But, and as you say, I was reading about, uh, for instance, Toyota and the car industry, which in Japan has to make some very difficult choices. And it does seem to me that they're starting to uh, urge more electric cars, but they say that since the uh, Europe and, and, and the world generally looks at the carbon content, they need more renewable energy, you know, before before you even get to making the cars. That the cars themselves can't have too much embodied carbon carbon within them. So I guess if the auto industry starts pushing for more renewable energy, there's a, there's a good chance it will actually happen. Do you think? Absolutely. Um, yes, the auto industry is, uh, is is very powerful in Japan, and we're seeing um, these encouraging statements calling for more renewables and as you say saying um, that the production of cars and electric vehicles requires a lot of electricity and that needs to be decarbonized so um, definitely that is a is an encouraging sign yeah and I saw that the new chief executive of Honda uh, was previously the person leaving leading Honda's electric vehicle uh, uh, efforts uh, such as they've been so far. So I guess that's, that's a sort of a sign as, as well. Coming on to hydrogen, uh, I guess, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of people here in Australia would see that Japan would be a big customer for hydrogen if we were to make it in Australia. And um, it's difficult, though, because the hydrogen industry, particularly the green hydrogen industry, is still in its infancy. Uh, I think the total global production of hydrogen is 70 million tonnes at the moment. And, you know, the green hydrogen production of that's effectively zero or very close to it. Um, Japan, I think, has a target, doesn't it, of something like about 3 million tonnes of hydrogen green uh, by 2030? Uh, I'm just trying to remember the numbers. Yeah, that's right. Um, 3 million tons by 2030 and tw 20 million tons by 2050. And for ammonia, I believe they had separate targets of 3 million tons by 2030 <clears throat> and 30 million tons by 2050, which is, um, I, I think, like a different hydrogen equivalent. But yeah. 
Yeah, I think I calculated myself that about 20 million tonnes of hydrogen would be enough to get about 50% of the energy for, you know, that, that, that coal uses in Japan. So it's, it's a bigger number than, than it looks. And um, what's your sense is that Japan is actually pushing on with that pretty hard? I mean, do you get any any sort of vibe about actual investment dollars being spent? Is there a lot of government support for it? How are you thinking about that? Sure. Um, so recently, uh, the government announced, uh, I would say, 18 billion US dollars uh, green innovation fund for uh, new technology R&D over the next 10 years. And, uh, you know, the, I, I believe the first of one of those projects was a $3.4 billion hydrogen supply chain and electrolyzer project. Uh, and then in addition to that, uh, annually, the government spends about $300 million on um, like hydrogen yeah, R&D and subsidies. So there is, there is definitely money involved in this. And um, just sort of the narratives that we're seeing and reading is that the utility sector is certainly keen on having more ammonia and hydrogen um, as fuels. And of course they are a massive off taker. So I think hearing this from the utility side is, is quite significant because, well, for starters, utilities uh, you know, not not only do they buy a lot of fuel, but also they are obliged to provide stable electricity to their citizens. And so they have to make sure that the there's enough hydrogen and ammonia for them to buy. So it's it's really setting off in motion this massive um, industry for both hydrogen production, transportation and and use, I believe. But of course, then there's the question of how, you know, is it viable economically? Uh, you know, <laughs> if, if renewables, for example, are considered to be too expensive, then which are quite an established technology, uh, and the costs have been coming down dramatically over the past uh, years, then how can they really justify investing into something like ammonia or hydrogen? And then, of course, there's um, kind of the question of, is it going to be commercialized soon enough to be aligned with our decarbonization needs? So the IEA Net Zero report, um, you know, said that advanced economies uh, power sector has to be decarbonized by 2035 if we want to hit the net zero targets by 2050 and be aligned with 1.5 degrees. But what we're seeing with ammonia or hydrogen in power generation isn't really there. So how how are they going to fit all the pieces together? That's that's kind of the question. Yeah, and I think you know the vibe we we would all get inevitably is that something's going to have to be sped up. You know, probably by an order of magnitude or several things, if Japan's really going to get there. Uh, the other other technology, and we're talking about a lot of stuff, Monica, that you listen to the <laughs> podcast all the time that that that, that I wouldn't normally talk about. Uh, but I also see that Japan would like to think about 
more nuclear power, which you mentioned in your opening remarks, and particularly these uh, small modular reactors uh, that are supposedly load following. You know, I've only looked at these very casually in the past, but as far as I know, there aren't any of those that exist in the world right now outside of a laboratory. Uh, do you, um, how keen do you think corporate Japan really is on that particular uh, technology? Oof. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how to, I, I, I'm not a nuclear expert. Um, all I know is, uh, you know, same as what you mentioned, uh, is that this technology is not available yet. Okay. Well, that, yeah. that's pretty, that's pretty clear. So, I mean, I, I, <laughs> okay. uh, and, I, and I agree with you, it's not available. Uh, um, so, it, it, you know, it, it leads me back to this fundamental question of how, Japan's actually going to achieve its target. But, uh, you know, I, I also think that where there's a will, there is a way. Um, and, um, and I suppose Japan also is going for doing, trying to do something with its housing stock uh, outside of the energy sector, uh, trying to make that more neutral, uh, less carbon in it. But I, again, I, I wonder if there's actually that much uh, construction activity. I mean, the uh, Japanese population uh, isn't growing that quickly. Um, do you need a lot of, uh, you know, uh, new construction work? Um, yeah, I mean, especially rural areas, uh, you know, there's a big problem of people leaving um, villages and moving to big cities. So you know, certain prefectures are offering free houses just so people could move in. Uh, but then, I would say big cities like Tokyo, Osaka are are expanding. So, I mean, I think one of the one of the big issues for Japan is uh, for residential buildings. Uh, we don't have strong uh, energy efficiency codes. Uh, I, I think they're trying to address that. I'm I not aware of the details, but. Certainly, as we try to move towards net zero as quickly as we can and as economically as we can, um, we probably have to look at all these options and, you know, improving um, housing um, conditions is uh, certainly one of them. Yeah, yeah. It's not like I'm putting Australia up as having much in the way of energy standards. Uh, we've got some of the world's worst uh, housing for in terms of energy efficiency, but uh, probably uh, only Texas would be worse than us, I imagine. But <laughs> um, and electricity consumption per capita in Australia, even excluding the resources sector, is way higher than in Japan. So it's not like we're necessarily a great model. But anyway, um, look, Monica, I, I, I think we've covered the main efforts. It sounds like to me, the main issues, it sounds to me as if we, we've got to wait now and see what uh, METI is it, uh, announces in terms of the its plans for the energy mix, which is supposed to be coming up uh, this summer in Japan. Is that is that or in the next right. month? Yeah. Yes. Good. Well, I, I think uh, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. I hope we can come back and uh, talk talk again about Japan in a little while, and uh, uh, when when we've got uh, a, you know a clear clearer view of how it's going to go. Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you very much for having me. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure.
And that was uh, Monica Nagashima um, from the Influence Group. Um, a great interview once again, David. Um, I always just wonder about Japan sometimes. About um, They seem to be a bit slow on the electric vehicle side. Um, with Toyota just doesn't seem to be very keen about them still talking about sort of, you know, fuel cell vehicles and things like that. I'm not too sure if that's going to happen. But um, certainly what happens in Japan um, has a big impact great importance for the sort of projects that we talked about earlier in Australia and how they might be developed. Yeah, that's right. And so I think the Japanese car industry is actually making strides. I've seen a number of announcements and we talked about some of them in the interview uh, where the, the car companies in Japan want or say the reason one of the reasons is that the actual manufacturer of the cars isn't sufficiently carbon light. So they want the electricity system to be uh, decarbonized before they move heavily into the car electric car business. But they don't have much choice. And, you know, for instance, one of the straws in the wind was the, the new chief executive of Honda uh, is uh, actually the guy who came out of developing Honda's limited so far electric uh, car program. So he's he's been clearly got a mandate to go a lot harder on that. Look, we've had a long podcast, uh, uh, talked about a lot of important things, Giles. I, I think we should, uh, uh, and there'll be a lot more next week. Uh, maybe we should talk to our, thank our sponsors once again. Well, I think we should do that. I've got to rush up the road and get some ramen anyway and have some dinner. Um, thank you very much to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. Um, thanks to you, David, for the uh, great interview um, with Monica Nagashima. Thank you, of course, to all our listeners out there. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much for your positive feedback. And uh, we'll be back again next week with a, another great episode. And I'm sure, I'm hopeful, more interesting announcements. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.